Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Korach, um, Korach. <laughs> the address is Bamidbar, Numbers chapter 16, verse 1, through chapter 18, verse 32. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher, Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on June 28th of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, this is Parashat Korach, and Korach is just the Hebrew way of saying Korah, which is why I kind of hesitated at the beginning there. Usually the Torah portion is something like, you know, Beha'alotcha, and then, you know, I usually translate it into English as like when you set up. Uh, but in some cases, the, uh, the English translation is not too far from the Hebrew. We just drop the guttural sound there, Korach, and then Korah. Uh, now, Korah, if you remember, is the rebel. He's the... Uh, He's the villain of the piece. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to paint him out to be a bad person, but in the story, if you have read the Torah portion out of Numbers chapter 16, you remember that he is a Levite, and he's not a priest, but he's one of the sons. In fact, his father is Yitzchar, um, and he's the son of Kahat. Now, they're, they're Levites. And he, along with some of the descendants of Reuben, um, decide to rebel against Moshe. That's how the first Pasuk starts out. You remember Dathan and Abiram, or Datana and Aviram. These people joined together with 100. And, I'm sorry, with 250 men of Israel, and they and they were these were leaders, by the way. And they decided to get together and challenge the authority and the leadership of Moshe. And you got to think what Moshe is going through because it was not only what Tupar showed to go that Moshe's own brother and sister also challenged his leadership. Oy vey, the um, the job description of a leader—it's not pretty, <laughs> you know. Um, you've always got—you're always going to have people uh, challenging you, trying to undermine you, people trying to um, question your authority, things like that. So this is that story. This is the parasha, and it tells of the disloyalty of Korach. Um, 
I call it disloyalty when it says, you know, this, in my description of my commentary, I said that it's disloyalty, owing to the fact that this complaint of Crocs was an audience designed to, to address uh, the current leadership of Moshe and Aharon. However, knowing Crocs' heart, knowing his motives, he wasn't really just questioning Moshe's authority, now was he? A better suited term might be open mutiny. That's right. He was really trying to dethrone Moshe and take his spot. And um, that we just can't have, especially with someone like Moshe, whom God has already demonstrated is someone that he speaks to face to face or mouth to mouth. Now, let's do this for the readers, those of you not able to read the entire Torah portion. Let me go ahead and provide you for a summary of the story um, so that we can just uh, be able to midrash from it. Okay, it goes like this. Korach and followers from the leaders of Am Yisrael challenged the authority of Moshe and Aharon. They actually accused the two brothers of lording over the people, if you recall. Moshe's response is divine, if you remember. He actually instructs them. No, he challenges them to an authoritative proof test. First of all, he falls on his face. He's very humble. And he says, you know, I haven't even taken so much as a donkey from you. I haven't even... I haven't done anything to you, but then finally he says, "Fine, all right, let's 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 have a challenge here, okay?" Um, since and and Moshe decides to go ahead and kind of play by Korach's rules, since the human factor of choosing leadership is obviously, or I should say, in the eyes of Korach, obviously faulty, Moshe decides to let God choose the appropriate man for the job. So you know, Moshe says, "Fine, you want to challenge me, and you think I'm not qualified? Let's go ahead and see what God has to say about this." Now. Interestingly enough, they, uh, the, the rebels, they accept Moshe's challenge, and the next day, Hashem does indeed intervene. Um, at Moshe's spoken word, and you can pick up the reading in chapter 16, verses 28 through 30, at Moshe's spoken word, the supernatural judgment of Hashem vindicates the chosen leadership of Moshe and Aharon, and if you recall, the earth opens her mouth and swallows the rebels alive. And also a flame comes from the Lord and consumes the wicked men who would have offered an instance of fire before Hashem. Because that's what Moshe says. He says, go ahead and get your fire pan, bring it before the Lord, put your incense in it. And whoever's, whoever the Lord wants to um, choose, then he will um, 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 he'll choose this fire pan. And uh, um, again, this is right in chapter 16. So, if you'll recall from my summary here, God indeed vindicates the chosen leadership of both Moshe and Aharon. Um, and this is really an object lesson to all who would otherwise follow after these sinners. God is big on demonstrating to the community that not only is, he, is, is God going to vindicate the leaders, but God is also not going to tolerate um, the, uh, uh, the widespread rebellion that can run rampant in a community once an incident like this um, you know, starts up once an incident like this um, uh, is 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 brought to light. Because typically, if one person challenges Moshe, then there usually is um, a root of rebellion as well somewhere else in the community. Maybe I mean, think about it. How in the world did Korok just suddenly end up with 250 men who were willing to take his side against Moshe? It didn't happen overnight. It means that we had um, we had uh, um, we had this this kind of um, treason this kind of treasonous um, attitude already within the camp and as it were Quark just becomes the catalyst to, uh, to you know to, to bring it to light where it can actually full-blown uh, become a challenge against Moshe so again Hashem is going to teach the people an object lesson 
and um, the righteous son of Aharon, Eletzar, is instructed by Hashem to fashion the firepans, if you recall, used by this rebellious bunch into plates to cover the altar for all to see and remember. Also, um, <clears throat> if you'll remember uh, in the story, let's see, okay, I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I don't have to tell you, I can just go ahead and read my commentary. This initial tirade, this initial challenge sparks a further challenge from the people. And this is what I mean by where we've got this we've got this attitude in the camp that Hashem has to uproot. Because the people actually once they see Korach die and they see these two hundred and fifty men um, get swallowed up by the earth, once they see that that the that the enemies of God's chosen leaders have been killed, what do they do? Instead of saying, Yay, God has vindicated the leadership, God has demonstrated who is to be in charge, God has um, uh, once again um, shown us that we should follow Moshe and Aharon. What do the people do? They cry murder. Murder. Yeah. The spirit of Hashem, <laughs> who's observing this from the Ohel Moed, the Tenth of Meaning, he gets upset. And he has a right to be, because the people, again, the next day, they look, they, instead, of, instead of recognizing that the judgment of Hashem was justified in that Hashem squelched this, this rebellion, the people cry murder. Now, if you think about it, they're crying murder against Moshe and Aharon. But in reality, who are they impl implicating? Yeah, you guessed it. They're actually implicating Hashem. So Hashem's not going to have any of this. So what does he do? He sends out a plague to teach the unrighteous horde a lesson that they won't soon forget. And again, keep in mind that whenever God judges, there's an act of mercy involved. We usually see, again, these dual themes of mercy and judgment running side by side. There is an atoning libation upon the altar that is presented to stay the wrath of the Almighty. Aharon actually goes and um, offers a, uh, a, a libation, as it were, to God. If, and we can pick up the reading in chapter 17, um, starting in Pasuk 11 in your, in your uh, Hebrew Bible, but it's chapter 16, verse 46 in your English version. Moshe says to Aharon, Take your fire pan, put fire from the altar in it, lay incense on it, and hurry with it to the assembly to make atonement for them, because anger has gone out from Adonai, and the plague has already begun. And then the next Pasuk says, Aharon took it, as Moshe had said, and ran into the middle of the assembly. There the plague had already begun among the people, but he added the incense and made atonement for the people. I like this next uh, clause. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. That's the job of a priest, people. That's the job of an intercessor, to stand between, the, between death and life and to intercede for anyone um, who is in the presence of God. And so, again, we see mercy and we see judgment because, you know what? God is ready to wipe them out, and, and, and he had a right to. God is the, the righteous, terrible judge of the universe. And who can bring a counsel against him? Who can lay a charge against Adonai's actions? No one. So whatever God decides to do, we can be assured that that's the right thing. God doesn't make mistakes. And so if God's going to judge them, that's the right decision. Who are we to answer against God? So again, Aharon's obedience effectively gains the favor of Hashem, who then stays his hand of judgment, but not before, again, object lesson, object lesson, 14,700 of the community have been slain in his fury, brings to mind the Pasuk that says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. What's Moshe experiencing? What's, what's Aharon thinking? What is God thinking? How did God feel about this whole thing? I like to think that Hashem, feeling that he has effectively gained the attention of everyone entertaining thoughts of mutiny at this point, 
instructs Moshe to take staffs from each of the leaders of the twelve tribes, and then he tells them to write each leader's name on his respective staff. Because again, God wants the people to trust him. But God is not going to simply reprogram their thoughts. God is not working with a bunch of robots who, who have suddenly developed viruses. Like if we had a bunch of computers lined up, and if we had viruses on the computers, well then we could easily take the necessary trouble, we could easily take the necessary troubleshooting steps to, um, to reprogram the computers without any opinion from the computers themselves. But people are not computers. People are real living beings. God created us with individual uh, needs and individual emotions and individuality. And we, are, we, ha we have our own will. And so we can decide to side with God or we can decide to challenge God. And God gives us that freedom. And in this decision, God simply does what is necessary to help us to maintain a right relationship with him. And so this, this, these, this putting together of the staffs, if you recall, the staffs are taken after they've got their names written on it, and they're placed before the Aram Kodesh, the Ark of the Testimony, in the Ohel Moed. And Hashem has promised that one of the dead sticks, remember it's just a staff, he promised that one of the dead sticks will miraculously sprout life, and that the man who owns that particular staff is indeed the verified leader of the community. So the people place the staffs and they wait. God again is not just going to reprogram the people's minds especially after this this, this rebellion with Korok, the 250 men challenging Moshe. God wanted to wipe them out. Moshe interceded thank goodness. And yet God still says, you know I want you to understand that everything I do is for your good. The leaders that I place before you are for your own good. If you challenge the leadership, you're challenging me. And I don't want you to challenge me. God's saying to the people, I don't want you to distrust me. Just just trust me. <laughs> Place your trust in me. I'm leading you into the land. I'm leading to a good and spacious land. I'm going to be with you. The proof is in the fact that if we read forward through the Torah, getting into the book of Joshua, we will see that God makes good on his promises. And actually, the people of the land are actually afraid of the people of Israel. You know, so the people, the people of Israel, are just very premature in their fear and their lack of faith in God. The next day, um, Aharon's staff not only sprouts buds, okay, but flowers and ripe almonds as well. God performs a miracle so that the people can understand that God has made the right choice. Moshe and Aaron are not simply operating under their own power, and that's a powerful lesson that we can take down and apply to our leadership today. We may have differences with those whom we perceive are in leadership over us and whom we also perceive are making decisions based on their own powers or under their own, uh, under their own uh, uh, decisions and things like that. Each man's staff is returned because God has made his choice. God says Aharon is the man for the job. He is the high priest, people. He is the one whom I've chosen, whom I've anointed to do the job for you. He's your representative. He acts on your behalf. He acts on my behalf. He's a go-between. He hears your requests. He brings them up to me. He hears my instructions. He sends them back down to you. So, Aharon's uh, staff is actually placed near the ark for a visual reminder for all to, who observe uh, that the Lord alone designates who will lead. And of course, later on, um, we know that, that his staff gets put into the ark itself. 
Now the remainder of the parasha describes the various priestly functions within the community, while outlining some of the privileges and inheritances uh, afforded to the Leviim, to the priests. This is not going to be a long commentary today. Um, I envision easily maybe 40-45 minutes, so just one part. So um, just uh, uh, um, sit back, relax. Uh, we won't we won't wax long today. Okay, we're on the middle of page two. Now, the particular story that I just described about the rebellion of Korach and all, it was well discussed among the company of the ancient traditions and writings of the Jewish people, as you could have expected, right? The Talmud and the Midrash alike are both, um, uh, I should say, I don't want to say preoccupied, but they both give ample space for Korach and his uprising, because there are lots and lots of lessons couched not only within the Peshat of the text itself, but also there are a great number of lessons couched within the Midrash and the, uh, the writings of the sages. Perhaps, however, no other collection takes more time to explain Korach's ill feelings towards Moshe than the work known as the Legends of the Jews by Louis Ginsburg. Now, Louis Ginsburg lived from 1873 to 1953. You can actually read some of his stories, a collection of his, uh, online at this website. I'm just going to see if I can see if I can read this off to you at http colon slash slash philologos that's p-h-i-l-o-l-o-g-o-s dot o-r-g slash underscore e be like boy dash l-o-t like tom j slash v like victory o-l um, numeral three slash letter p like paul zero eight dot htm or if you have the written commentary and you're looking at this online click on that link it is a hot link it'll take you straight over to um, some of these stories i'm going to pull some of that information into our commentary here in a moment but to this day legends of the jews remains a most remarkable and comprehensive compilation of stories connected to the hebrew bible now what it is is um, in case you're wondering I believe it's an indispensable reference on that body of literature known as Midrash. Okay, Midrash is where we kind of allegorize, we, we take a little bit of license with the text and we, we embellish a little bit on the story. And we try to spin a, an important, um, maybe a, a, a lesson into it. And that's, that's what Midrash ends up doing. Um, the imaginative retelling and elaboration on Bible stories in which mythological tales about demons and magic coexist with moralistic stories about the piety of the patriarchs. That's, that's kind of like what Midrash ends up being. Um, every religion has its Midrash, and uh, Judaism is no exception. So again, Legends, this book that I'm referring to, is the first book to which one turns to learn about the possible... Uh, I'm sorry, about post-biblical understanding of the biblical episode. For instance, again... A lot of this is legend, but it's based in fact. Um, for in, if you wanted to, like, lay, say, discover the source for biblical legends that cannot be traced directly to the Bible, then um, Legends of the Jews is a good place to start. It's also the place to find answers to such questions as, say, the date of Abraham's birth, or what was Moses' physical appearance, or uh, what was the name of Potiphar's wife. Things like that show up in Legends of the Jews. Again, without the... Um, tools available to dispute everything that the legends of the Jews say, then I suppose we could take it with a fair amount of grain of salt, if you were, not believing everything that we read, but not discounting everything either. You know what I mean? Just find that comfortable middle and say, okay, I understand that this is, this is stuff that's been passed down 
from person to person, from community to community. And although I'm not going to swallow it all apart, you know, swallow it hook, line, and sinker, um, I'm going to take it with a grain of salt that, that there's a reason why they embellished the way they did. So let us glance a peek into Mr. Ginsburg's work, okay? And so what we're going to do is from Volume 3, Chapter 5, we find concerning Korok this particular quote, all right? Top of page 3, quote, Speaking of um, Korok, then he tried to make Moses appear ridiculous in the eyes of the people. Shortly before this, Moses had shortly before this, Moses had read to the people the law of the fringes on the borders of their garments. Now let me just pause and say it's because that was in last week's Torah portion, right? All right. Uh, shortly before this, Moses had read to the people the law of the fringes and the borders of the garments. Korah now had garments of purple made for the 250 men that followed him, all of whom were chief justices. Raid thus. Korah and his company appeared before Moses and asked them if they were required to attach fringes to the corners of these garments. Moses answered, Yea, or Yes. Korah then began this argument, quote, If, he said, one fringe of purple suffices to fulfill this commandment, should not a whole garment of purple answer the requirements of the law, even if there be no special fringe of purple in the corners? He continued to lay before Moses similar artful questions. Here's another one, quote, must the mezuzah be attached to the doorpost of the house filled with the sacred books? Moses answered, Yea, or Yes. Then Korah said, The two hundred and seventy sections of the Torah are not sufficient, whereas the two sections attached to the doorpost suffice? Korah put still another question. If upon a man's skin there show a bright spot the size of half a bean, is he clean or is he unclean? Moses responds, Unclean. And, continued Korah, if the spots spread and cover all the skin of him, is he then clean or unclean? Moses answers, clean. Korah continues, law so irrational, said Korah, cannot possibly trace their origin from God. The Torah that thou didst teach to Israel is not therefore God's work, but thy work. Hence art thou no prophet, and Aaron is no high priest. End quote. Now again, the legends of the Jews is trying to get us to get inside the mind of Korah to understand perhaps why he's challenging Moshe. Amidst all of the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Moshe has already performed in the sight of all the people, yet still we have Korah challenging Moshe's leadership. And it's helpful sometimes to speculate as to what exactly was the point of contention between Korah and Noah. I'm sorry, Korah and Moshe. Um, Korach being, being the one challenging Moshe. If you notice in this text, it doesn't say that Moshe challenged Korach. Korach is the one who comes up to Moshe and says, you know what, this and this and that and that, I challenge you. Throws down the gauntlet, so to say. Now, um, this last line in the, in, the, in the Legends of the Jews here, it actually absolutely leaves us, the readers, no room for, it leaves no room for misunderstanding the intention of this man Korach, if we are to assume that these um, statements made by the sages, by Lewis Ginsburg, are actually somewhat factual or accurate. And I don't have any, have any reason to believe that they're not. But again, consider, in the economy of the Tanakh, to challenge God's chosen leader is tantamount to challenging God himself. There's no two ways about it. And that's why the lesson is important for us today. If you find yourself submitted to leadership, no matter which position you're in, everybody answers to someone. Don't just arbitrarily challenge the people who are in leadership above you. There's an important lesson for us to remember. And this is echoed in the apostolic scriptures as well. If I get to it, I will. God 
places the leaders that are in our communities in those positions. God promotes. And even when the leaders are bad, even when we know they're wrong, we must still understand that God places the leadership where they're at. And in this placing, to challenge that leadership is to challenge God's selection. Our best our best bet if we're having problem with leadership obviously you're allowed to go to leadership there is a mechanism where you can have a hearing before your leadership I'm not talking about um, heartless tyrants uh, people who are dictatorial that's not what I'm talking about rather I'm talking about our own messianic communities where we have mechanisms built into place whereby you can seek an audience with those above you and talk to them about your concerns if you feel that decisions are being made that aren't in line with biblical truths, well, obviously you can seek an audience with those in leadership above you. But what I'm what I'm cautioning against is outright challenging that leadership without going to the proper channels first. At first glance, it appears that Korak took the proper channels. He went to Moshe. But if you notice, when he got to Moshe, he did not ask Moshe the 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 line of questioning that would be um, appropriate for someone with a concern over Moshe's leadership. He simply comes right out and challenges Moshe right up front, which means Korach had already made his decision that Moshe was wrong. And so that's the challenge for us today. Don't do it, people. It's rebellion. And I'd rather see us not get caught up in it. Okay? Let's move on to a different topic in our Torah portion. Let's talk about idolatry. Okay? Biblical idolatry, which is really tantamount to um, adultery in God's eyes. Biblical idolatry. I can't help, as I'm listening to this story, as I'm reading it and, and familiarizing myself with it, I can't help but be reminded of another familiar Torah lesson where a challenge of authority takes place and where God's chosen leader is vindicated supernaturally. Okay? I want to bring into our attention now the story of Eliyahu, Elijah, and the false prophets of Baal. We're familiar with the story again, but allow me to recount the story here in our current portion and point out some valuable similarities between the challenge then and the challenge that we're reading about in Parashat Korach, okay? The incident of Eliyahu and the prophets of Baal is recorded for us in 1 Kings, which is 1 Malachim, chapter 18. And if you'll recall, the story is the familiar tale of, Eli of uh, Eliyahu Hanavi, uh, Elijah the prophet, and his encounter with the false prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. If you'll remember, the people of Israel were once again, since the golden calf incident that we read about earlier, they're once again engaged in grievous sin. Now, the worship of the false god of Baal in this time period that we're talking about was rife in the land. In fact, the sin of idolatry was the most prevalent downfall of historical Israel during the time period of the Tanakh. You can just put that in your database and, and rely on it, okay? Israel's penchant lust for idolatry was just, it was at, she was out of control. And that's something that God was going to break from his people. So, Eliyahu was sent by God to set the record straight that day. Look at the verse um, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. Quote, How long are you going to jump back and forth between two positions? This is um, Eliyahu challenging the people. If Adonai is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, follow him. End quote. Now, of course, this reminds us of another Pasuk found in um, the book of Revelation. If you recall, Yohanan records concerning Yeshua 
uh, his uh, Yeshua's um, admonition to one of the churches, he wishes that, that, that they were either hot or cold, but because they're lukewarm, he's going to vomit them, spew them out of his mouth. And so we have the same logic being uh, played out here. God wishes that the people would either follow him completely or leave him and follow after the false god. If Adonai is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, follow him. Just make your decision and stop riding the fence. This profound challenge is the focal point of the entire passage that we read about in 1 Kings. Now, with the vindication of God as the ultimate authority, Eliyahu's leadership also takes on validity. See the connection? God gets vindicated. I'm sorry, God... Yes, God vindicates himself as the only true God. It's a contest between God and Baal, and we know, of course, there's no contest. There's no dualism going on. There is no God like our God, because there are no other gods. All other gods are false gods. There's only one true God, and God is about to set the record straight. But in God demonstrating his own, uh, um, uh, how should I say, his own authenticity as the one true God, because the people were, were undecided at the moment, then Eliyahu automatically gets vindicated because if God is God, then Eliyahu is, in fact, the prophet chosen by God. Now, as I've stated in other parshot, idolatry itself is one of the most insulting sins against our God. Why? Because when we replace God with a lesser interest, we're not only turning our attention towards something other than our God, than our, other than Lord, our Lord, but we're actually focusing our love and affection Things which you'll recall were created to belong to Hashem alone. We're actually focusing these things towards something which has no authority to even be identified as God. And in essence, what we do when we practice idolatry, and Israel was going to learn this lesson the hard way, we actually transfer the glory due to Hashem to another less qualified object. And that's why it's blasphemous, blasphemy, to attribute that which is only... Um, um, should be only attributed to God, but attributed to another lesser created being. It's blasphemous. It's idolatry. It doesn't have to be the name Baal to be a false god. We know this. Anything other than Hashem himself is an idol. Anything that we place in the highest position within our hearts becomes or can become an idol. No wonder God, seeing the heart of us, of his people, becomes jealous. And no wonder he describes himself as a jealous god. Similarly, historically, when the people rose up in rebellion against the leadership of Hashem, as in Parashat Korach, they were in reality rebelling against the Almighty Himself. You see the connection between these two stories now? For our God is the ultimate establisher of all earthly authorities, including specifically Moshe and Aharon as leaders of the community of Israel. Right? So, again, the, the lesson is painfully clear. If you haven't picked it up yet, and this becomes a a very big problem in Messianic communities the world over. We have our leaders, and we people who follow our leaders, we people who sit in the pews, we look at the leaders, and we decide within our own minds, within our to, to ourselves, you know what, we could be doing a better job than these leaders that we have appointed over us. Let's Why, why don't we challenge these leaders and appoint ourselves better leaders, people who we feel. In fact, hey, let's go ahead and take the job ourselves. Let's, let's mutiny against the current leadership and replace the leadership with people that we've chosen. It's wrong. It's wrong. And so that's what we're talking about today. Now, this next section that I'm going to talk about, I repeated in, um, in, a, in a parasha just a few weeks, maybe a few, maybe three or four weeks ago. So this will sound somewhat familiar. The sages teach on this statement jealous. Remember, God calls himself a jealous God. They teach on the statement jealous, which is expounded upon in the Torah portion of Exodus 34:14, where God actually uses the phrase, I am a jealous God. Now, according to the Midrash, 
the term jealous only applies when we as his created subjects transfer our attention to something that is less qualified to receive it than God himself. Okay, follow along with me. For example, the sages tell of a married couple where the husband who is royalty, he's a king, he becomes enamored with a woman who's not his wife. Again, those of you who follow my commentaries quite regularly have heard the story just a, maybe a month ago, so bear with me for those of you who have not heard it yet. So we've got this king, he becomes enamored, he becomes uh, um, enthralled with this woman who's not his wife. Okay? The story says that upon discovery of his lust, his wife, the queen, confronts him about the other woman. All right? So the man is caught, the king is caught, so he confesses that he's fascinated with another woman. Now his wife then begins to question him. In her first round of questioning, she wants to know, she inquires actually about the other woman's status. And the king is puzzled. Her status? What do you want to know about her status? What do you mean? What, do you, what about her status? Well, his wife explains that if he, the king, is lusting after someone of higher status than she, the queen, then perhaps the other woman rightfully ought to receive his affection, since, according to the logic of the queen, the other, the other woman, is equal to or higher than the queen is. Okay? She's telling these things to the king. He's listening intently. However, the queen goes on to continue, explaining to her husband, the king, if the other woman that you are that you are enamored with, if she is of lower status than me, then the then I, the queen, have a right to be jealous, since my husband, the king, is stooping low to transfer his affection. Do you see the lesson there? It's subtle. I'm not saying we completely agree with all of the logistics of it, but just follow along with me, all right? Now, I recognize that the literal aspects of this midrash is ridiculous, okay? No other woman, whether queen or commoner, should be occupying the king's thoughts. You agree? I agree. No one but his wife deserves his affection. Yet, the teaching principle remains valid. And what is that? God, who is the king, God becomes jealous when we transfer our attention to a lower, less qualified object. Now, obviously, in the Midrash, I'm switching the roles. God is like the queen, in this sense. We could have just as well reversed the Midrash. Let's say that the queen becomes enamored with another man. And the king asks the queen, who's this other guy you're interested in? Is he a king? And if the queen responds yes, then perhaps maybe the king ought to step aside or he, not, he ought not to be upset because this other man has equal or greater status than he. In other words, implying that, hey, you know, I want you to have the best, and so I guess it's okay for you to transfer your affection to something better than me because I'm lower than you, than, than this other man. However, if this other man is lower than I, then I have a right to be jealous because why should you be transferring your, you're a queen, your status is high, and you're transferring your affection low? That's the object lesson there. Again, in God's particular case, we can bring this lesson home. We can just come full circle and, 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 and uh, make a proper application. Because in God's case, there exists no other person or thing in the known universe that is equal to or higher than Hashem. You get it? He has the right to become jealous, and that's the clincher. When we, his queen, as it were, his bride, transfer our affection to someone other than God, then every time he has a right to become jealous. Why? Because there's no one else in the universe who is higher than God. No one is equal to God. No one is higher than God. Therefore, God has a right to become jealous every single time. So the lesson is obvious. Every time. 
we practice idolatry, God has a right to be jealous. We cannot serve anything else and expect him not to be jealous. So, let's make the application to our current, current Torah portion. When Korach challenged Moshe, he, Korach, made the presumptuous statement, let's pick it up in chapter 16, verse 3, quote, After all, the entire community is holy, and every one of them, I'm sorry, after all, the entire community is holy, every one of them, and Adonai is among them, end quote. Sounds simple enough. However, the problem with such a statement is that only the designated leader of the people was qualified to lead the people. And guess what? We don't get the pick. Hashem makes the distinction. God does not say, okay, people, uh, well, there are times when God allows a, a democratic vote to take place where the people vote in a leader. But either way, God God vindicates the people's choice by anointing that leader and placing him in office. Okay, Really, we, we must understand that's what's taking place. And it is true that there was a measure of, of accuracy in what Korach was stating when he said that the corporate that, that all, everyone had a corporate holiness, that they all of them, the entire community was holy. That's true, but that's a side issue. It's a smokescreen. Korach was just trying to, to, to really um, put forth an argument that had no, no relevance to the current situation. Now, that's not the real issue here. Korach had a problem with authority. He didn't really say, you know what, we're anointed and, and, and we wish that everyone were anointed as much as, as we perceive Moshe to be anointed or, or as we perceive ourselves to be anointed. That wasn't really the problem. Korach was a rebel in his heart and he had a problem with authority and that's a lesson for us today. If there's a root of rebellion within us, we've got to root that out. <laughs> Pun intended, I guess. We've got to take that root out. We've got to deal with it earlier on. So let's draw our conclusions to our commentary today, and then we'll just make it just one part, okay? This last section is entitled Conclusions. As we read through the Torah portion today, authority was the issue. Authority was the issue. And it was the case in the story of, the, of kings as well. Authority was the issue. The people were challenging God's authority. This is why Eliyahu and Hanavi could make such a bold statement like, if Adonai is God. You remember how he said that, if the Lord is God, choose him? Of course the Lord is God. He's not, he's not challenging the notion of whether God is God or not. What he was doing was, he was trying to shock the people back into some sort of common sense. Because um, the people had lost sight of the fact that Adonai truly is God. It's not as if there were any possibility that God might not actually be who he's supposed to be. It's not that, that Adonai might not actually be God and that Baal might actually be God. God forbid. That's not what, what, what Eliyahu was entertaining. It was that since Adonai definitely was God and is God, this is what Elijah is saying to the people, then let's get busy serving him because he's God. You see how that works? It's not the question of whether God is God or not. The truth is, He is God. And so let's make our decision based on the truth. In other words, in our prophet's mind, there was never a contest. Never. The same issue existed in the mind of Moshe. Okay? Never did Moshe doubt his chosenness when he issued the challenge to Korok, when he said, okay, let's go ahead and do this, all right? You go ahead and bring your fire pans, I'll bring mine and we'll see who's really the leader. Moshe didn't have any doubt in his mind as to who the leadership was. But since these insurrectionists were entertaining thoughts as to the validity of that truth, then 
Moshe went ahead and staged the miraculous contest, okay? And on that depraved group of people gathered there at the foot of Sinai, I wish that they would have caught a glimpse of what Eliyahu Hanavi knew. Those people gathered there um, that were challenging God's authority. If they could understand what the prophet knew, if they could, if they could, if they could perceive God the way that the prophet perceived God, oh, that that wicked bunch gathered at the, at the foot of Mount Carmel would have had the same revelation. The people of God need to catch this and grab a hold of it and lay a hold of it and put it within them and, and never lose sight of it, okay? We cannot challenge God's authority. To challenge God's authority is tantamount to an assault on God himself. And if we could understand this principle, who in their right mind would challenge God himself? Oh, that today we might also catch this lesson. Why did I call them depraved just a moment ago, that depraved group of people? Well, when we, God's people, allow our idolatrous passion to overtake our ability to internalize the glorious truth of the unequaled glory of the Holy One of Israel, when this lust conceives sin and sin leads to death, then guess what? According to the book of James, we truly are depraved. Read James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. In fact, in the Apostolic Scriptures, we have a quote uh, that makes reference to this rebellion with Korach. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, quoting Parshat Korach, it states, quote, that the Lord knows his own, end quote. The Lord knows his own. This statement is made in context of a chapter dealing with what? Foolish confrontations, just like the one Korach engaged in. God knows his own. Likewise, the bulk of the, uh, uh, the book of Jude, if we again pull up another passage from the New Testament, is given over to warnings against rising up against those who are clearly anointed ones of Adonai Tzvahut, the Lord of hosts. And then again, for this portion, I want you to read Jude chapter, I'm sorry, Jude verse 11. In my Torah commentary today, I've briefly covered the topic of rebellion and lust. Our passage above in James actually further clarifies the danger of unbridled lust. What are idolatry and rebellion if not unbridled lust? Lust for power. A lust for that which we don't have. Lust for power and lust for that which does not belong to us. These things will bring us down. God has placed the leaders there for our own protection. Are they perfect? No, they're not. Which is why we should pray for our leaders. We should not seek to tear them down. We should seek to support them. Try not to undermine them. And if you see someone else undermining them, do your best to put a stop to that rebellious attitude because it can fester. And before you know it, you have 250 men leading a lynch mob against the leader. We can't allow it to happen. Korok and his bunch learned this lesson all too late and certainly to their destruction. And that is why this type of desire, this type of lust among people is so dangerous in the fact that it can totally overtake an individual to the point of destruction. The state of mind that the individual finds himself in is one of depravity to be sure. In fact, don't take my word for it. 
read the following scripture for yourself, okay? I challenge you in closing with this particular passage. I challenge you to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and chart the downward progression of those people who fail to recognize and proclaim, quote, that Adonai is God, Adonai is God, and that the Lord knows his own. Amen. Amen. The closing blessing is as follows. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher natan lanu Torah Met Vechaye Olam Natapatochinu Barukata Adonai Notein HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. And with that, I wish you all a hearty Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.